Okay. Glad everybody's here. Squeezing in. I thought, I was like, ah, nobody's going to come this week. And we set up, I don't, I don't have a thought of faith in myself, I guess. But James and I were setting up tables. I was like, ah, let's just skip one table. We don't need it. And then it turns out Aiden's sitting on the corner and the Rasmussen's squished in a single spot. So if we need to, we'll, we'll pull out another table. But uh, let's go ahead and pray and, and get going. Uh, Miguel, will you pray for us? Yes, sir. Dear Holy Father, thank you, Lord, for who you are. Thank you for your goodness and your kindness and your mercy for allowing us to be here today to learn about justification, how the work of Christ that has was completed on the cross, that the you decree from the beginning of the age, it, it allows us to be part of your kingdom, to be part of your family. So we pray, Father, that you will bless this time, you bless Pastor Stewart, who's going to share the word, and that you bless each, each of us, and that you will continue to work in your hearts. And we just pray, amen. 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 All right. Well, if you don't have a, uh, a copy of the confession, we got more now. They finally came. So if you want one, you can get you one. Uh, go ahead and turn to chapter 11, where we left off. We left off in the middle of paragraph 3 in chapter 11. So we're going to run at that and see if we can get through... Six today, because next week, hey, Edna, come on in. Uh, next week, we're going to try to do the problems or the perceived problems or contradictions to justification by faith alone, because there's plenty of verses in the Bible that somebody could point to. And if, you don't, if you're not squared up on it, you can go, well, that sounds like it denies that whole thing we were talking about. So we can prepare ourselves for that. Um, but... Uh, oh, look at that. Some chivalry is not dead. There it is. It's alive and well. All right. Uh, but how, what I wanted to do just by way of review is just kind of throw everybody in. Any, any nugget that you can remember from the past two things of justification, you don't have to know the verse for it or the context for it. Just throw out like things that you know we've talked about already. We'll write down a few of them just to kind of review us and get the juices flowing. What can you remember about justification the past two weeks? It's Legal term, yeah. What, who, who said something over here? I did say righteousness. Legal term, hey, righteousness. That is the key word, righteousness or justice. Imputation and infusion. Imputation and infusion, yes. Imputation versus infusion. Now, who, who's on what side of that? Golly. Yes, Catholics are infusion. Protestants are imputation. Golly, I cannot write and talk at the same time. Teachers, y'all are heroes. What else? What other things do you remember from just tossing it out? Keywords? Penal substitutionary atonement. Penal substitutionary atonement. Man, now I have to write that whole thing. Penal sub-atone. There we go. We know what that means. It's not a Subway sandwich. <laughs> there you go. What, what else? What else? Uh, we learned that our works is fueled by our gratitude for being justified. Gratitude versus guilt. That's right. That's right. Uh, far, as far as our works go. Monergism and synergism. Yes, monergism. Monergism, monergism over synergism. So justification is a monergistic. And what does that mean? Somebody explain that. Monergism versus synergism. So monergism means one agent, whereas synergism means uh, multiple agents working together. Yes, a cooperation. Yes. Sola fide. Sola fide. Yeah, that's the big. That's the big dog. And that's uh, that's Spanish for for what? No, no queso. <laughs> Faith alone. It's Latin, not Spanish. It's not a. Uh, you're not ordering at a Taco Cabana, uh, although you can. All right, yeah, so that's good. That's good kind of rounding it out. And so where we left off, we left off in the middle of paragraph three. So we're going to run at the last half of it. So it's right after that semicolon where it says God's justice on their behalf. We're going to pick up with yet. So right there in the middle where it says yet. Yet, I'll read it for us. And mine's from a not totally updated language, but we'll still understand it. Yet inasmuch as he was given by the Father, meaning Jesus, for them and his obedience and satisfaction accepted in their stead and both freely, not for anything in them, their justification is only of free grace. So that by the exact justice and rich grace of God, 
might be glorified in the justification of sinners. So the emphasis here, what the, the big heading that I put over uh, that half is just and the justifier. We talked about that a little bit week one, but we're going to hit it again this week. Just and the justifier. But before we get explicitly to that part, it says very distinctly, freely, both freely, Christ's obedience and satisfaction. God accepts that in our stead freely, not for anything in them. Their justification is only of free grace. So this idea of free when you hear free, what do you think? No cost. Is it ever really true that something is actually free? Why not? Head shakers. It costs someone something. There's an old phrase, there ain't no free lunches because somebody's paying for it. So who is it free for and who is it cost? It's free to us, it costs Christ everything, right? So it's freely given. So let's look at the, the proof text that they have for this uh, all the way back from 1689. Same Bible. Romans 8.32. I want you everybody to turn there. Romans 8.32. Evan, can you read it? Oh, good. You got it. You got your book. Good. Yeah, good. Hey, hey. this will guarantee it. I guarantee this is a um, money back guarantee. <laughs> oh, man. Mickelson, will you please read Romans 8.32 for us? He who indeed did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all. How, he will, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? The gist of that verse, somebody just lay it out. What's Paul getting at? Right. I mean, he's, he's working from the greater to the lesser, right? And, and the graciousness of it all. So if you gave up your own son, I mean, you think about it in our own terms, that, I mean, it's, it's almost stomach-turning to even think about with my, one of my own children. But if I gave one of them up, he or she died for you, and then you ask me for a shoelace. Right? No, 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 I keep all my shoelaces. I, I, you already have, I, I've clearly communicated to you how much you matter to me. So why would I withhold anything less? I gave you the highest thing that there is. Freely given, freely given, graciously give us all things. What would he hold back? So this is this this freeness, which which makes us have to consider grace, which we've talked about before. But it says in the the, uh, confession says free grace, graciously given the concepts are here, free we know without cost. Grace, define it. How do we, how do we explain grace to a kid? Give what you don't deserve. Something good that you don't deserve, right? Mercy is being withheld something bad that you do deserve. If we're going to split hairs on it. What you got, Julius? Something that you didn't earn, but that you got. You didn't earn, but you now possess. Grace. So if we're saved... And it's all of free grace, which is really just a, uh, a uh, double positive or whatever. It's the same thing. Grace is free. There's not like, well, that's expensive grace. And this is free grace. No, grace is always, that's what it is. But it's, it's the explanation point for us here. If we're saved by free grace, what does that then mean about our faith, the, the fide? If it's all graciously given, what does that mean about the faith that we know we're saved by? It's also free. 
It's also given. It was granted to you, right? We talked about this in the catechism study on Sunday night, because and it's, but it's worth reiterating. If I already have faith, then salvation is not of grace. Because if I have faith, and that's what God says salvation costs, then I turn that over to him. What did I just do? I bought justification. It was, it was an unbelievable deal and incredibly lopsided, and I came out big time the winner. But if I already have faith in and of myself intrinsically as a human, then this now, justification is a transaction, it's not of grace. So therefore, faith also has to be given to me. I get given the instructions and the equipment and the tools and everything. It's not just, hey, I gave you the thing, but you already had the tools to build this thing. I had nothing. I have nothing. It has to be all freely given. See, this is where Reformed theology is really the only consistent theology when it comes to salvation by faith alone. Because everybody else is going to have to say, oh, you already had that faith as a possession that you owned and you made the right choices where to deposit it. Now, it was meager. It's just two wooden nickels. But you still had it and you turned it over. And so God transactionally then gave you justification. That's not grace. That is works. So Reformed theology is really the only internally consistent theology on justification by faith alone that just goes along with verses like we just read. It's a true gift. That means a gift has to be, in a sense, unforeseen, does it not? Like if that, that's what kind of ruins Christmas for spouses, right? Hey, I really want this. That, that's, that's not really a gift, right? But you, when you're just here, you weren't expecting this. this wasn't, you weren't searching for this. You didn't earn this, but here it is, present, Pow, right there. That's what a gift is. That's what grace is. And if in Romans 5, which we're not going to go to right now, Romans 5 says repeatedly over and over and over again, the free gift, the free gift, the free gift is not like what Adam did. The free gift of the second Adam is not like what the works that the first Adam did in Romans 5. But that's another topic for another day. So now we go to this, the, the, that, the, uh, that the confession was talking about uh, it's both freely, not for anything in them. Their justification is only a free grace that both the exact justice and rich grace of God might be glorified in the justification of sinners. How can it be that grace can coexist with justice? That's huge because this confession says it. We need to be able to find that that can exist. Otherwise, God is not just or God is not gracious. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. Edna crushed the answer for us. Uh, how can God be both, and here's where we're getting to it, just and the justifier? How can he let sinners go free but also never violate his own law. What's that? Because he's the judge. And what'd you say? Mercy. Mercy, right. Let's look at Romans 3.26, because this is where this language comes from. This isn't something that we just made up because we're creative. But go to Romans 3.26, this language of just and the justifier. Right. Yeah. Ms. Shevstov, will you read 326 for us? Are you there? Mm -hmm. All right. I said Miss Shevstov, sir. I, I didn't hear that. <laughs> <laughs> it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Okay. It was to show his righteousness at the time. So that means like, wait, well, what? was to show his righteousness at the present time. Let's look at the previous verse. 
Verse 25, whom God put forth, meaning Jesus, go back to verse 24, Jesus, as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. That was to show his righteousness so that he can be just and the justifier. So somebody lay it out for us, connecting it with Jesus. How does God then become just and the justifier? Say it again, Paul. You said it a minute ago. It has to be paid for. So Christ came and paid for our sin, and that satisfied the wrath of God for our sins. And then, therefore, He can give grace to us and mercy to us because the sin's been paid for. Right. So that that means that this just and the justifier is necessarily connected to penal substitutionary atonement. You you can't you can't look at Romans three twenty six and also not affirm penal substitutionary atonement. People do it, but they are horrendously inconsistent. Because what you're gonna to have to do if Jesus wasn't a substitute that was punished, penalty, for us in our place, substitutionary, substitutionary, and then to make full account for what sin had been broken, the law that had been broken, then we can't be, God is not just in the justifier. God just decided the rules don't count anymore. What I said before at Mount Sinai was just kind of, ah, I realized that was kind of maybe too hard. So we're going to blow that off, and I'm going to change the rules. But it can't be that if, God, if the moral law is the true reflection of God's actual character. He can't ignore it. Otherwise, he is, he is a maniacal, capricious God just like every single one in the Greek pantheon, or the Roman pantheon, or the Hindu pantheon. Just a capricious fly-by-night, do whatever you want. You're the big, strong kid on the block, so the rules don't apply to you, and you can change the rules when you want. But that's not a just judge that never punishes according to the law. So think about it like this. This is the, the way that I, I can most easily think to explain it. If you're running around town and breaking a bunch of laws, vandalism, speeding, stealing, breaking in all these things, and it's you and three buddies, and then you all get arrested and you're standing before the judge, they got you dead to rights, fingerprints, video footage, eyewitness accounts, uh, tire track, treads, everything. You're, you are dead to rights, you and those three buddies. But then you say, hey judge, I wanna be punished for them. Take me instead. Why would that not work? Why would no, why would no judge let that fly? Category of the law, meaning... You can't ignore the law. Oh, can't ignore the law. Right. Well, and I you can't ignore the law, but also, I broke the law. So, I can't... He, the judge would go, what are you talking about? You gotta do time just like they do. You're just as guilty as them. So that's why none of us could stand in the gap for anybody else. I'm just as guilty as you. I need a substitute, too. We have to have a perfect God-man substitute. Otherwise, we all go. It, because we're all lawbreakers. And so then what God can do, God, what God does do, is to say, look at his perfect innocent son, who did not run around in the car with us carousing and doing all those things, perfectly innocent, and he will say, this amount of damage was done, this amount of property was stolen. This amount of community service is owed. This amount of jail time is owed. This amount of fine money is owed. And he paid all of it as an innocent party on your behalf. That's how that has to work. That's how we can be just in the justifier. The law was broken in all of these ways. So if you imagine all of our sin, the church universal and throughout history, and the church to come after we're gone, if they're still around, Lord willing, he comes soon before soon. Uh, all of those sins, you take all that list and then compare it to the law of God. This many laws were broken. They all have to be paid for. Jesus comes and pays for all of those sins. Therefore, also, we have to affirm limited atonement because what did he actually die for? He had to have died for something specifically, not just a generic, hey, I threw a bunch of money out there and if you got it, just go ahead and get it. 
He paid for specific things. Just and the justifier is what uh, is happening. So somebody said mercy. I want to bring this back up. Uh, We talked about this again the other night. How does, has anybody ever heard God talk about either penal substitutionary atonement, justification, election, or whatever, and say, that, that's, that's just not fair. God can't do that. I'm sure we've all heard that. But here's the reality. We are all standing before the judge, like Edna said, and there are only two options. You will either receive justice or you will receive mercy. Nobody, nobody will get injustice. We accuse God of that, but it will not happen. You will either get justice, which is hell, or you will get mercy, which is the grace of Christ accounted to you. Nobody will receive injustice. There is no injustice with God. It's only justice or only mercy, which is why God is just and the justifier, and we worship him as such, as just and the justifier. Uh, And then we come, Jeremiah, you said you knew this verse. I'm going to challenge you right now. Do you know 2 Corinthians 5.21? I do. Crush it for us. Tell everybody right now. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. <sighs> Thank you. Turn to that one. Second Corinthians 5.21. Second Corinthians 5.21. If you don't know it, if it's not highlighted, highlight this verse. This, this is a, a key verse for us to understand justification the righteousness, the legal term, the imputation, the penal substitutionary atonement, all of it. And the monergism. 2 Corinthians 5.21. Come here, highlight, underline, memorize. He made him to be sin who knew no sin. For whose sake did God do that? For our sake. He didn't do it for himself. He didn't need it. This is for our sake. This is pure, unadulterated love so that we might become the righteousness of God even though we don't have it. We get the righteousness transferred to us, imputation, because he made him to be son, punished him as such, and he did it all by himself, monogistically, so that he can be just and the justifier. Somebody was punished for the law being broken. It just won't be you and any who call to God in faith so he can justify us freely by his grace. That verse is huge. And then so then you end up with um, at the end of this this paragraph that God might be glorified in the justification of sinners. You look at all of this and we're going to just read a couple of verses who else gets the glory for this? Nobody but God. Nobody but God. I don't see anything on here that I did except for the bad stuff. All I see is sin and a substitute. Why? Because I did something wrong, so someone has to come in and clean it up. All I did was bad. So who gets the glory? That God might be glorified in the justification of sinners. And if you have faith and then you choose where to put it, then you get a little glory too. You, you were wise enough, smart enough to see that God's deal was the best deal. Best decision I ever made in my life. Like you're talking about buying a Traeger grill. What are you talking about? <laughs> do, you, do you know we used to say stuff like that? Oh, yeah. Really? Finding Christ is the best thing I've ever done. Mm-hmm. No. That's crazy. Yeah. Right. The best thing I've ever done. I finally figured it out. Like you just found a better banking option. I get better interest on my my savings account. Best thing I ever did. Yeah. No, it is scary, but I didn't do it. And then and then certainly if you're in the work system, whether it's Catholic or Pentecostal or whatever version of it you're in, then you have to also say, you know, I mean, I didn't do I didn't I did better than them. Huh. I mean, we're all going to go, but I contributed 35%. They only contributed 34% to their salvation. So I deserve, you know, I mean, and then you're, if you are going to hell, then guess what? You, you deserve it, and I don't. You deserve it. Instead of saying, I deserve it, 
The Puritans used to say, there but by the grace of God go I. And God is the only one that gets glory in this system. So let's look up a couple of verses. It's in Ephesians. We'll be in chapter 1 and then chapter 2. So go to chapter 1 first. I'll go to chapter 1 and we're going to look at verses 6 and 7. Ephesians 1, 6, and 7. If somebody's there and wants to read, go ahead. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. And then read 7 also, Jeremiah. We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. The riches of whose? His grace. To, in verse 6, to the praise of what? His glorious grace. There is no other way around it. This is all solely Deo Gloria. This is the, 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 the final of, of the uh, solas of the Reformation. He gets all the glory. All of this is for His glory. It, this is all just a gift to me, and I can do nothing but just thank Him. I can do nothing but glorify Him. And then let's look at Ephesians 2.7. It's another one to just kind of cap it off before we move on to paragraph 4. Somebody read that. In order that in the coming ages He might show the incomparable richness of His grace, expressed in His kindness to us in Christ Jesus immeasurable, incomparable riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. He might show it. All of this is done for our sake, but for His glory. He gets all the glory from all of this to be glorified in it. So as we move on to the next uh, section we got to remember that what this, what the justification is, is justification is the trunk of the tree of the Christian faith. And so often what we do is we get distracted by people picking fruit off the tree or pulling leaves off the little branches or breaking twigs. And we're ignoring the chainsaw at the trunk. This is where it all stands or falls. So we, this is why it's worth the study that we're doing. So look at uh, paragraph four now. Let me read. We're going to read the first section of it. God did from all eternity decree to justify all the elect. And Christ did in the fullness of time die for their sins and rise again for their justification. Now, there we have two parts. We've got election justification, but then we have the time and space, time and space, death and resurrection of Christ. We'll see how they connect. Let's go to uh, Galatians 3.8 first. Galatians 3.8. Penny, are you there? Mm-hmm. Read it for us in a teacher voice. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. The scripture, foreseeing God, would justify the Gentiles. He would justify. So that was a done deal. Now turn further right in your New Testament to 1 Peter 1, 1 through 2. Question. Yes. Why is scripture capitalized right there? Which one? What's Scrapsula? Oh, Scripture? In the New Testament? Yeah. Does it have it capitalized? Yeah, it does. Mine has it too. Yeah. It does that with Scripture. It doesn't do that with Word. But it does do that with Scripture. Yeah. And it could be a, a, just a translation that does that because the NASB capitalizes H for pronouns for God, but other translations don't. So That's right, yeah. Good question. I'll, let me look that up and talk to you about it, Julius. I'm a, that, you got me interested now. But it, it is true that the New Testament testifies to the divine inspiration of... Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. 
All right, First Peter 1, 1 through 2. James, will you read it? Sure. <clears throat> Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Dosha, Asia, and Bithynia. Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the saint, uh, sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. So this is opening the letter. You're like eight words in and it says elect exiles. How are they that? According to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit. So election and justification go together. We saw that week one in the golden chain. Remember the golden chain from Romans 8.30? That those who are called, He justifies those whom He justifies. He glorifies. But He, he predestined, called, justifies, glorifies, or sanctifies and glorifies. So we have that there. We've reiterated that before, so we're not going to spend a lot of time there, but we're going to go do this because that section from the confession says Christ did in the fullness of time die for their sins and rise for their justification. Time and space. Like that's, that's when he says it's happening. It happens in time and in space. So do we have to affirm a literal death and a literal resurrection of Christ in order to be saved. We say that pretty easily in here, but you'd be surprised at places that are willing to deny that. But that's not that big of a deal. It doesn't matter. I can show you a famous Easter sermon written by somebody that would really disappoint you. Whether or not Jesus raised from the dead is irrelevant. He's just that does the resurrection concept live large in you? Does it live in you? I mean, is that concept in you about turning over new leaves and coming around and, and, and being willing to give it all up and die down? No, it's got to be actual time and space because the rest of the Bible affirms that. Look at 1 Timothy 2, 5 through 6. It happens in time and in space. It doesn't happen in our hearts. It wasn't just a great story that they told to build up the lore of the Messiah. So 1 Timothy 2, 5 through 6. Scott, are you there? Can you read it? I'm there. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. Testified at due time. Does anybody else have something different than testified at due time? Which is the, the testimony given at the proper time. The proper time, due time. Key, key word is there, there was a time that was appropriate, and that's when Jesus did it. That it was all coalescing right then, which is what we've been seeing on Sunday mornings, right, with the, all the prophecies being fulfilled at Jesus' death, Pontius Pilate having to be in his position, Caiaphas having to be in his position, all those things, Rome needing to be in charge of the world. It happens at the proper time, and he gave himself as a ransom. In all of your understandings of ransoms, I'm sure you never had to deal with kidnappers, or I hope you never have had to deal with kidnappers. Did they accept figurative money? Are they like, wow, well, you know, I think it li you, you got it. You understood what I was after. No, you better really pay. Otherwise, nothing happens. And death comes. Life only comes when you really pay. So it's real death, real life, at real time and real space. So let's go to another one to fulfill it or just kind of round it out. Galatians 4, 4 through 5. Galatians 4, 4 through 5. Who's there? But when the fullness of oh, time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that you might receive adoption as sons. Yes. When did God send forth his son? At the fullness of time. It had to happen. It happened in real time. This wasn't something that could have just happened anywhere, at any time. It all had to be coalescing at the right time. This is all the sovereignty of God, uh, the grand miracle of His unseen providence of millions of micro decisions and movements and molecules over the history of millennia 
to then get to that moment, real time and in real space. And then we know you don't have to turn there, but Romans 4.25, that Jesus is raised for our justification. If Jesus doesn't rise from the dead, if Jesus dies for our sins, but yet doesn't rise, what do, then, what do we get? The death counts for something. What does it count for? Substitution, propitiation. Think about it like this. If we're, at a, if we're in the red, if we're going to make it economic terms, we're in the red, the death gets us to zero. Your debt's paid. But you're still not righteous. You're still not adequate to be in the presence of God. I don't have adequate righteousness. So he has to rise again for that to happen. Romans 4.25 says that he's delivered up. He dies for our sins, but he's raised for our justification. If he stays in the dirt, then he was just a really, really great sacrifice that got me back to zero, which is what every blood, the blood of bulls and goats were at least uh, symbolically doing. You had to do that again every year. So it just got you, it just wiped it away, but then you ruined it back again and you had to just get back to zero every time. I can never get ahead in this game. Right. So he has to be raised for our justification. So it can't be that Jesus swooned on the cross and then the cold rock when they laid him on it, boom, that shot him straight up and it was like a jolt and then he just walked out and everything was okay. And there's all kinds of theories out there, like how we can get around the actual resurrection. But if he's not resurrected, then we have no hope. We don't have time to go to this, but if you want to look at that, the chapter that's definitive on that is chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians. It's all about the resurrection and what we don't have if we don't have the resurrection, why it's vital. But we're on justification. So we keep on moving. Let's read the second phrase of, um, of paragraph four. It says this, Nevertheless, they are not personally justified, or not justified personally, until the Holy Spirit does in due time actually apply Christ unto them. So here's the big question. When does this take place? Now, that seems, that seems simple, maybe, but we've, we just talked about before about election. And election happens before the foundation of the world. It's always been in the mind and the heart of the triune God of all creation. It's never not been in his heart to save who he intends to save. So then when do I get actually justified? After he rises and sends back, what else do y'all think? At regeneration. At regeneration? What does that mean? That's a fancy word. We haven't talked about that word. <laughs> you got your glasses low on your nose. That's why you know that word. <laughs> you should have pushed them up right at the right time. <laughs> or, or chewed on the end. Chewed on the end of it. There it is. <laughs> regeneration. Right. So here's what you could think about, or here's what... Uh, Antagonists may say, like, oh, so you're saying that people are saved without having doing anything. That they're just walking around. You're just born saved or born not saved. Well, in the mind of God, but not in real time and space. You're still born a sinner. That's what this text is after. Right? Justification happens when you repent and believe. There's not people walking around who are saved and don't know it. That, that's, and that's a stereotype that people will throw out against any kind of predestination or election convictions. Is like you're just saying that people are what they are, and we don't have to do anything. As the church, we have to don't do have to do any evangelism, have to do any outreach, have to do anything like that. But this is directly contradictory to that. It only happens when the Holy Spirit does, in due time, actually apply Christ unto them. So let's look at some verses about that. Colossians one. 21 and 22. You already there, Mickey? I'm there. Can you read it? And although you were formerly alienated and enemies in mind and in evil deeds, but now he reconciles you in the body of his flesh through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. 
So we see that, I mean, that's, that's in the middle of Paul's discussion, but look at the concept of what we're after. You once were alienated, hostile, and evil, but what are you now? Reconciled. So it wasn't that you once were just unaware of how justified you really were, and now you know. It's you were not, and now you are. You were hostile, evil, wicked, but now you've been reconciled. It had to happen. That had to happen in real life. And then we'll, we'll nail that again one more time in Titus. So just go a little bit to your right in your Bibles and go to Titus 3, 4 through 7. Somebody read us Titus 3, 4 through 7. These are great verses. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of the works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Christ Jesus our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Thanks, Paul. That is a huge justification passage. We're going to hone in on just pieces of it. So verse 4, when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. And we know it's not by works, it's by mercy. But then it says, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. That's when it happens. So Paul brought up that word, regeneration. You can, when you hear regenerate, you think rebirth, like John 3. You're born again. That's when you're saved. At some moment, you were in darkness, and now you are in light. Does anybody know John 5.24 off the top of their head? It's a good navigator verse. Paul Rasmussen. Miguel knows it. You don't know it anymore? Oh, no. A pox upon you. I think that, <laughs> that was not in my John 5:24. Jesus is speaking. He says, "Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me does not come into judgment, but passes out of death into life." That actually happens. So when we affirm the doctrine of election of predestination, we're not denying people are in darkness and then pass into light. <clears throat> We're not saying, this is not a Disney movie where the girl's walking around the whole time and never knows she's really a princess. She never actually knows. Until one day, the scepter is just in her hand. That's not what's happening. You, you were a pauper. You were homeless. You were poor. You were dirty. You were a criminal. You were a thief. Then you find out that he made you something that you weren't. And he always intended to. Yes. Yeah. Right. Oh, that's paragraph six. We're going to get to it. Don't worry. That's paragraph six. <laughs> that, that's the big ending. But you knew where we were. I mean, you're feeling it go that way. So that's a good question. That's a good question because it, it happens in time and in space. So we are talking about a real passing from death to life. So then that means then this is where this is before we get to the paragraph five. That means then that we have to proclaim the gospel, that there is a necessity of it. You can call it the, the free offer or the universal offer of the gospel. What we don't do is go, well, I don't know, are you, are you elect? Or not? I mean, I can't really tell. We, we just throw the gospel everywhere. Have you imagine the not imagine just think back to the scriptures Matthew 13 the parable of the sower when you live in an agrarian first century world what is seed to you your livelihood it's your money do you think that a first century person could tell the difference between rocky soil a hard path and good soil then why did he throw seed on the path, on the rocks, and in the thorns? You're supposed to see there, the gospel is the word, is the, the seed is the word, right? You throw it everywhere. You don't determine who hears it and who doesn't hear it. You throw it everywhere. And the seed is your money. Yeah. 
That's your most valuable thing in a first century agrarian culture. So throw it everywhere. We don't go around. That's, that's the, the, uh, the counterweight to Arminianism is hyper-Calvinism, where we never actually preach the gospel. We never actually tell people to come to faith in Christ. You must believe. Now, we always know that in some sense we're telling dead people to do that. But what did God tell Ezekiel in Ezekiel 37? Son of man, can these dead bones live? He didn't say no or yes. He said, you know. And then he said, preach. Preach to dead bones? What could be stupider than that? God does it, though. So we're always, in some sense, whether we're sharing with a neighbor, preaching from the pulpit, talking across a coffee table, talking to a dead person. And it won't matter until God makes them alive. But we have no idea when that will be. So we just throw seed everywhere. That's the necessity of it. So that's why the, the confession puts that in there. Because Paul says in 2 Timothy 2.10, no turn there, we're just going to keep going. Or you can if you're fast. <laughs> 2 Timothy 2.10 says, Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ <laughs> Jesus with eternal glory. Paul doesn't say, well, they are going to be elect, so I'm not going to suffer for them. It's going to happen no matter what. No, he says, I suffer for them so that they will obtain salvation. I do have to go. I do have to proclaim. It does have to cost me something to do it. 10, yeah, how will they hear without a preacher? How will they believe? All right, so we're going to keep on rolling. I'm going to try to get us through this. Better at time management this time. I got, I got rebuked by one of my elders for preaching too long on Sunday, so I'm trying to... I'm <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> he didn't rebuke me. He was just kidding. Uh, it was Greg. Yeah, blame Greg. <laughs> blame the guy that's at jujitsu right now. <laughs> All right, paragraph five. The first thing, this is the continual forgiveness. This is where we justification comes home to the justified. It says there at the beginning, God, uh, this is paragraph five in the confession. God does continue to forgive the sins of those that are justified. Did you read that? Say that again. God does continue to forgive the sins of those that are justified. Do we still sin after being saved? So therefore he continues to forgive. This is where when I talk to people that are enslaved to some sin that's repetitive, they just keep going back to it, they hate it, you eventually start thinking in your guilt and in your shame, he is finally done. He is done. Or if I sin at all, what I need to do is go ask for salvation again because I clearly lost it. Or if I don't believe that I lost it, I never had it. I mean, I've, I can't tell you how many times I've gone to lunch or coffee with some guy struggling with some sin. He's like, I don't think I'm, I'm saved at all. And then I just go, do you want to be right now? I mean, yeah. Then believe now. Let's just fix that. But then let's talk later about he does continue to forgive. We know Matthew 6, 12. This is one of the, the verses that the confession cites. That's the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our debts, our trespasses, whichever translation, as we forgive our debtors. Jesus told who to pray that? The disciples. the disciples. Believers pray to God regularly for forgiveness. That it, it doesn't do anything, but it just clouds you from seeing God. And he's always ready to forgive. Does anybody know 1 John 1, 9? Miguel, that's a, that's a nav verse. Say it in Spanish. <laughs> I can say it No, don't do that. No, don't do that. <laughs> that, that session is after, after class. <laughs> First John 1, 9. You should turn there. First John 1, 9. We confess our sins. He is faithful and just to forgive our sins. It's of all unrighteousness. Key things to notice in that verse that are missing. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just or faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Two, two key things are missing from that verse, an expiration date and a waiting period. When does that go out? I, I, I can't confess anymore. I'm past the expiration date or a waiting period. I sinned, but then I got to wait in order for God to be back 
in fellowship with me or to be, be, be in connection with me. When you sin against, when you're a teenager, you sin against your parents, you do something wrong, you get in trouble, you're paying your dues, and then you say, hey, by the way, can I have 20 bucks and go to the movies? They're going to be like, no! Why? Because they're still mad at you. God doesn't work like that. Once you've asked for forgiveness, He grants forgiveness, and it's there. Oh, it, say, go find a priest. Yeah, He said you can come straight to Him. Yeah, there's no, there's no mediator between the mediator. That's right. We have one mediator. We read it earlier in 1 Timothy 2. There's one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. So we can continue to be forgiven. So then the confession goes on after that. And, and this is paragraph 5, and although they can never fall from the state of justification. So it's building to something, but you need to know that. Can never fall from the state of justification. This is permanent. And the legal sense, how, how does the legal sense help us to understand the permanence of justification? What's that? Double jeopardy. Double jeopardy. Right, there you go. Like you can't be tried for the same crime twice. You've already been absolved by the judge. The judge has already said, this block of broken law has been paid for. Not guilty. And he's the one with all the authority. God is the supreme Supreme Court. So it can't go back. And then we know from passages like John 28, 29, where Jesus says that I, I am the good shepherd and I keep my sheep. I lose none of them. None of them can be snatched out of my hand. None of them can be snatched out of my hand. So that's the eternal security part. But it keeps building. It, the confession keeps building to this. They can never fall from the state of justification. That's impossible. Yet, they may by their sins fall under God's fatherly displeasure. And in that condition, they have not usually the light of His countenance restored unto them until they humble themselves, confess their sins, beg pardon and renew their faith and repentance. So here we're entering into a new Latin phrase. Let's see if you can pronounce it. I can't talk and write at the same time. Those are two C's. That's not a W. Simul Eustace et peccator at the same time or simultaneously just and sinner. So Martin Luther coined that phrase, and that's where we live. So that's what this paragraph, this, this, this half, is all about. I can still sin. This is what Romans 6 is all about. So if you think about it, Romans 6 compares our relationship to, to God and to sin as one of, of, of slavery. I'm a slave to sin, or I'm a slave to God and a slave to righteousness. But when I'm a slave to God and righteousness, I'm free in regards to sin. But do I still know where to go to do sin? Do I still know where my old master lives? And if I show up for work, is my old master going to say, hey, you're free. Get out of here. No, he's going to beat me and yell at me, treat me like garbage. But the difference is, is that I am justified. So I can just walk off of that property and that old master can't do anything. It's me that's making the decision to go do that. So that's what this part is after here. So the Father's displeasure, we can displease God, though we are in perfectly right standing with Him. Psalm 89 lays this out for us. Psalm 89, 31. We're going to be in Psalms a lot, so just turn there. Psalm 89, then we're going to do two more, two more Psalms passages. The, the, the Father can be, we can displease Him in our lives. 89, 31 through 33. Somebody read it when you get there. They violate my statutes and do not keep my commandments, then I will punish their transgression with rod and their iniquity with strife. But I will not remove from him my steadfast love or be false to my faithlessness. I will not violate my covenant or alter the word that went forth from my lips. Thanks, David. So you just see right there, you just see actual heavenly fatherness, right? If you break the rules, you violate my statutes, don't keep commandments, I will punish you. But I will not remove my steadfast love. Yeah. No. Yeah. Yeah, the Father's displeasure. But 
when we repent, what happens? Go, go, there's a need for repentance. That's what it, that's what it says in the confession. Uh, until they humble themselves and confess their sins, beg pardon, and renew their faith and repentance. Psalm 32, 5. Psalm 32, 5. Psalm 32 is David writing. So I think it's David. Let me get there. Uh, it is. I thought so. Psalm 32, 5. Somebody read that verse. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the guilt of my sin. You forgave it. I acknowledged it, didn't cover it. I confessed it and you forgave it. He and David is at this point in time a Christian described as the man after God's own heart. I can still sin, but I am forgiven as soon as I repent, as soon as I confess. And the big famous uh, Psalm of David about repentance is Psalm 51. So if you're looking to connect, that that's, that's goes back to 2 Samuel 11 and 12 with David's sin with Bathsheba. This is his prayer of repentance. And verses 16 and 17, we'll key in on it. The whole chapter is very much worth our reading and rereading and rereading. But verse 16 and 17, I'll read this. He says, For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with the burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O oh God, you will not despise. David's saying, God, you're not after my big showy external religious practices you're after my heart because anybody can modify their behavior for a little bit a dog can do that my dog does that he, when I say sit he sits why because he knows I'm going to give him this piece of chicken off the grill it's not because he loves me or respects me or cares about me he knows this is how it works the transaction he's modifying his behavior just to externally his heart's not bent towards me. David says, that's what the heart's after. That's what we can now do in a state of justification. I never fell out of that state, but the way it describes it, the light of the countenance is not on me. And then you think about, uh, just for a story, a perfect illustration of this is Peter. He hears the cock crow three times and he's weeping. And that weeping, we would collate with repentance. What does Judas do when he realizes this wasn't a great idea? Where does he go? Tries to give the money back. Yeah. And then when he's done with it, he says, I'm not going to go back to Jesus. I'm going to go and just deal with this myself. I'm going to handle the guilt myself with suicide. Peter goes back to Christ and Christ restores him. He denied him three times. And in John 21, Peter's restored three times. Yeah. Well, the Spirit's inspiring them, right? Yeah, yeah. It's crazy, man. Until you really understand and you have become legitimate, like Paul said. Yeah. This stuff is heavy, man. Yeah. Jesus. Yeah. I never thought of it like this. Like, God loves us that much that He allows us to be human, but we still. You know, we mess up the earth, but he still says, you know what? I'm keeping a bare mind. Yeah. Regardless of what happens. Right. And he, it's like the Holy Spirit brings that conviction. Because we hear stuff from people. When you send the Holy Spirit to leave you, I did a teaching on this. I'm like, that's not what the word said. The word said we were no. sealed with the Holy Spirit. Today. Sealed. Yeah. Ephesians 1. Yeah. And you got people saying that the Holy Spirit will leave you because you sinned. Right. And we're teaching this stuff to people. Well, and that's that goes back to the monergism. I didn't get myself here. I can't get myself out of here. I didn't choose this. I can't unchoose it. I can't send it back. The sheep can't jump out of the hand. Nobody's going to snatch you out, but you can jump out. No, you can't. You didn't jump in. Yeah. You didn't jump in. Yeah. So absolutely. This is the, the great magnitude of justification that it is done. And this, 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 is, this is so divinely coordinated. I never plan anything. The Lord plans it all. 
that it coordinates with Tetelestai on Sunday. It is finished. This is all done for you. And it's always been done for the people of God. So now we get to your question, Julius, in paragraph 6, where it says, The justification of believers under the Old Testament, meaning anybody who died before Christ, in all these respects, one and the same with the justification of believers under the New Testament. So here's, here's the texts on this that we're gonna that we're gonna run at. So go to go to Romans 3:25. We're gonna be there, and then we're gonna be in Romans 4. But well, let's go to Romans 3:25 first. Because that, that's where it's brought up so plainly. And then this then chapter 4 is just the illustration of it all. Romans 3:25. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. He passed over former sins. Who's He talking about? That's Old Testament saints. I mean, the key word there should be passed over, right? Pass over. D- did God need? a pile of dead goats and bulls and lambs. No, he didn't need that. He wasn't like, well, that's the currency that I take. I mean, he didn't need that. It was grace that he let that be counted as uh, insufficient, but but, uh, eternally insufficient, but temporarily satisfactory payment for sin. But we know from Hebrews 9 and 10 that the blood of bulls and goats will never take away sin. So how are they ultimately forgiven who never knew the name of Christ? He passed over those previous sins. We go to Romans 4. So just turn the page. Romans 4 is Paul's Old Testament defense of the doctrine of justification. That's the whole chapter is about. And he goes to two main characters of the Old Testament, David and Abraham. Big emphasis on Abraham David gets a little bit of time. So at the end of the chapter, he's moving towards it in verse 22 through 24. Somebody read those three verses for us. 22 through 24, 22 through 24 yeah. Therefore, also, uh, it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Now know for his sake only what it was written, that it was reckoned to him. But for our sake also, to whom he will be reckoned, as to those who believe in him, Praise Jesus, our Lord, from the dead. Thanks, Miguel. So this is why faith was counted to him, meaning Abraham, as righteousness. And it says those words, it was counted to him, it was reckoned to him, it was credited to him. Whose sake was that written in the Old Testament for? Not for his alone, but for ours also. It was written down for us, Abraham. Abraham's the example in the Old Testament. So wait a minute. When was Abraham justified? Does anybody know the chapter verse? Genesis 15, 6. Abraham believed God, and it was counted, credited, or reckoned to him as righteousness. When is Genesis 15? Is it before or after all the things we know that associate with the law? Ten Commandments, Mount Sinai, circumcision. It's before all of that. Circumcision comes in Genesis 17. The law doesn't come until 400 years later with Moses. So before there's any institutional Judeo-Christian worldview, Abraham is justified. Now, how can Abraham be justified before there's a substitute? Credit. Let me draw you something here. This is a scientific drawing. They teach you this in seminary, so don't copy it down. You have to pay to get this. <laughs> Here you go. If that's the time, if this is a timeline, everybody before the cross is saved on credit that got paid off at the cross. After the cross, everybody's saved on debit. It's already there. This is, we're looking forward to it. Abraham says, or it's said of Abraham in the book of Hebrews, that Abraham saw that day and was satisfied. They were all looking forward to, they're trusting in the promise of God that he will bring one. 
He, the, the, the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. We're still looking for that one all the way through the Old Testament until Jesus comes, until last Sunday. It is finished. The head's crushed. This is done. We've, this is the one. But everybody's looking forward to that. God will do this. He will do this. We're trusting in this. Everybody has, from Cain and Abel forward, a picture of what does sin, Adam and Eve forward, what does sin cost? Sin costs life and blood. Because when Adam and Eve, what's the first thing God does towards them after they sin in the garden? Close them with what? Animal skins. Something had to die to cover them. And that's always been the case. Cain and Abel. Why is Cain upset with Abel? Abel gave what God desired in worship, which was a sacrifice of an animal, a life. All the way down the road. Because, and then what does... What does uh, Genesis 22, Abraham and Isaac, as they're, they're going to Mount Moriah and God says, sacrifice your son. What is Isaac doing on the way there? Where's the sacrifice? And you know what else he's doing? He's carrying the wood. Who else carried wood to the mount of their sacrifice? Christ. And then what is wrapped around Jesus' head? The thorns. What is the substitute for Isaac? A ram caught in the thorns, wrapped around his head. So we see all of this. We see substitution. We see payment. We see credit. It was all there. Something has to die for my sin. But these goats are never going to be enough. You, if you're living logically and consistently as an Old Testament saint, you're going to go, what's going to happen when I die? I'm not there to make sacrifices anymore. Father God, be merciful to me. Please be merciful to me because I won't be here to keep paying for my sin. I'll be dead. So I'll have to be saved by grace because I'll just look back at the Old Testament and go, I didn't do any of that. I didn't keep any of that. So they're looking forward to it and then a payment comes. That's why Luke 2, you should read it every Christmas when Simeon holds the baby. I have seen your salvation. Here is the end of the road. He, this is it. This is the final payment right here. And he bursts into prophecy and prayer and song and all of these things. I mean, imagine being Mary going, yo, what? what? We were just kind of following the rules, like, and just showing up for the circumcision here. And then there, he, he just go. He's, he's the one guy, that, and him and Anna, shout out. One, <laughs> him and Anna <laughs> been waiting for this. They're the only two that are like, this is it. This is the end of all of the credit. It's debit from here on out. That's how we get saved. Well, that's it. I'm done. <laughs> you don't have to land a plane when it's not a sermon. You don't have to have good endings. You can just crash it. <laughs> but next week, what we're going to do is, is we're going to do the... Uh, well, what about this first? What about this first? The ones that people might throw at us. Or when we're just reading our own Bibles and go, wait a minute, it says that directly denies what we spend three weeks reading. So we're going to do that and we'll do a Q&A and discussion. So if you got questions and you got things like that, bring them and we'll, we'll put all of our brains together, see if we can't hatch a, an egg of an answer.